everyone, we are on Season 5, Episode 9, and today I have Roy back with me and Kevin Carr of Carr Consulting. Hi, Beth. Hi there. Hello. Today we're going to be talking through public relations and insurance. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. How are you both doing? Have you had lovely weekends? It's been okay. It was my dad's 80th, but he had COVID, so we didn't see him. Um, bless him, but hopefully we'll see him on Saturday instead. Oh, that'll be lovely. That'll be so nice. Happy birthday, Kevin's dad, who we've yeah. got to know and love over the years. Alan Carr, believe it or not. Yes, Alan Carr. That'll probably confuse some listeners, but yeah, it's not the Alan Carr, but it is the the other Alan Carr kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, Ke- Kevin's dad is funny. Oh, good. <laughs> Um, well, I hope he's okay because obviously COVID, you know, it's it's still that thing, isn't it? Obviously, we're seeing numbers on the rise and it's, um, and everyone just seems to, I kind of feel like it's a bit of a free-for-all now as to what people are doing and everything. But so I hope he's doing all right and that it's not um, not upsetting him too much in a sense. He seems fine. He seems fine. Thank you. He's supposed to be on holiday, but he's not gone, obviously. Oh. <laughs> Was he going abroad? No, he doesn't go abroad. He hasn't been abroad since he was about 20, I think. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> he, he, likes, he likes a UK holiday camp. Fair enough. There are some nice ones about. That's very good. So today, everybody, we are going to be chatting um, through obviously PR and obviously definitely an area that Kevin is specialist in. I'm sure that probably the majority of our listeners will know who you are and um, know about protection with you that obviously you're heavily involved in. And then I think today's probably hearing a lot more about like the the other kind of things that you are doing in terms of how we promote you know, potentially companies, how we promote ourselves at awards, and also what we're doing in terms of as an industry. Because um, I think all of us are very aware that um, we all feel that there's a lot of negativity about insurance, and it'd be quite good to maybe have you come in and uh, sorry, get rid of some of the myths around that, possibly. It'd be really good to have your insights. So it's probably a really good idea to just start off with you giving us a bit of background about how you got into PR and also the world of protection. Well, the world of protection, I, uh, I started working for Nationwide when I was 18 um, at the um, at Victoria branch, although my interview was at, was at Moorgate, where I ended up. Um, and I was on the till, doing the things that you do as an 18-year-old, working on the till in a building society. Uh, and I quickly realised that the only interesting job was the financial advisor, um, because he was fun and he seemed to come and go when he liked and he had meetings with people when he wasn't he just sat on a desk handing out money behind this sort of pane of glass. So I thought, well, financial advisor is a bit of a long stretch given the exams and age and experience. But this mortgage advisor thing seemed a bit of a halfway house. So what I did was I, uh, I learned all the systems. So I learned how to work the, the, the mortgage quote system. And I, I learned the products that Nationwide had. And I waited and people would come into the banking hall and say, can I talk to someone about a mortgage? And quite often they'd have to book an appointment for a week or two later because there was either nobody there or the person was already doing an interview. And uh, someone came in one afternoon and I said, I'll do it as a, literally a spotty 18 year old. Um, and my manager looked at me as if to say, you know, are you kidding me? And I said, what have you got to lose? They're about to walk out and go to Halifax. I know the products. I know the systems. Give me a go. Um, so she did, um, thankfully, and that we ended up winning that case. And I got sent on a, a, a proper training course and moved to Moorgate and became one of the best 
uh, mortgage advisors in, in Nationwide. Um, now, we weren't allowed to do protection, interestingly. We were, we were doing the GI side of it, so you do buildings and contents, but life insurance sat with the financial advisor. Um, now, eventually, I left Nationwide, and via a couple of years at Commercial Union, I joined a firm called LifeSearch. Um, I was employee number 10. I can remember that because right. it said it on my pay slip. A couple had already left. So there was only there's only seven or eight of us then. Uh, and I the can't job imagine life... life search being that small, I have to say. <laughs> it just I know it must have started somewhere, but I just can't imagine it. <laughs> yes, it did. It started with a chap called Brian Wilson, who was advisor number one, an advert in the yellow pages with a phone number. And I think Brian sat in, in the Bagley Davies office, Tom's other IFA business that he eventually sold. And when the phone rang, Brian answered it and it, it went from there. So I, I joined LifeSearch in 2000. Um, so what's that? 22 years ago, I joined LifeSearch as a protection advisor. Well, that's, uh, that's, a, <laughs> that's a long time ago, mate. Um, it's interesting you mentioned training courses there, actually. Um, I mean, you, you come across IFAs all the time, clearly. Do you think we, we've lost some of those? Because I used to go on those similar. Do you think we've lost some of those brilliant training courses that some of the, the, the direct companies did? To an extent. I mean, you, you and I have both attended lots of training and we've delivered lots of training as well. You know, we, we've stood up in front of, of uh, certainly over a thousand advisors over the years. And, and the point we've all often made, and, and Catherine, you'll be more aware of this than us these days, but is to what extent, you know, that the, the training, if you like, is really sales focused and really product focused. And certainly during my time as an advisor, I had every insurer coming in, past and present, multiple times. And it, it got to the point where we really did indirectly start to charge them for advisors' time because it wasn't training, it was product push. It was, we've launched this product, this is what it does, you know, aren't we brilliant? And it wasn't necessarily overcoming objections or uh, how to how to uh, you know how to explain things in a simple one-line sentence. It wasn't necessarily about wider market issues or even wider consumer issues. It was really product push. And you still see that today. You still go to conferences um, and you still see companies really just essentially doing product push because a lot of that push comes understandably from marketing who are spending lots of money for those slots and they want to get the return on that spend. But I think six, seven, eight, nine advisors out of 10 will tell you they will much rather hear things that they can learn and implement in their business the next day. And that would also more be more likely to encourage more business to that company. So the sales side of the, of the relationship with the insurers is, is more important than the actual product. I think it's a combination, isn't it? You know, if you haven't got good products and good prices, then you're going to struggle to get business, whatever you do. For me, it's the combination of all of them, isn't it? Um, it, it it's, you need a decent product range. You need good broker support. You need good sales materials. But you need to understand how advisors think and how advisors work. And a lot of the people that deliver the training from insurers are unusually, it's unusual if they've been an advisor in their career. And I had a lot of advisors say to me over the years how patronizing they found it when someone who's never done their job, never sat in their shoes, never understood what it's really like to sit down, be it face to face or on the phone or on a video with a customer uh, and, 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 and give advice. And, and the difficulty, especially in the modern age, when, when people's time span is so short and their attention is so short, and that the skill involved to get something like protection across 
and to get the importance across and to get the importance of disclosure and underwriting across so that people buy something that is suitable and stick with it, you know, for, for, for longer decades. To be told how to do that by someone who's never done it is a challenging place for the industry to be, I think. And I think it, it's an area where we, we could do far better as an industry if we all sort of listen to each other. Absolutely. We could yeah. talk about... Yeah, we could talk about that subject for ages. I'm just, I'm very conscious we're here to talk about your PR skills as well, but uh, I'm sure we'll come back to that. So, t- tell us, when when did you first sort of jump out of the advisory uh, bandwagon onto the uh, onto the PR one? Then? Well, like most people, I had no idea what PR was or how newspapers worked. You just sort of read them and, and forgot about it, didn't you? Um, what really happened, I think, was was Tom Bagri understood, always understood, the benefits of of PR and brand. And, and, you know, making a noise, especially, you know, if you're making a noise about about doing something that is right and good for people. So we had a PR agency um, at that time. And what would happen is every now and again, a journalist would phone up and they'd ring the free phone number, you know, the 0800 number for life search. And whichever advisor answered it would end up dealing with that journalist. And you would give them some comments. You'd answer questions about how products worked. And you'd normally give them some price examples, like a little rate table. And a week or two later, that would run in the Times or the Telegraph or the Mail or whatever it might be. Um, What happened was that the other advisors didn't like doing it. They thought it was a waste of their time. It wasn't a customer. They weren't going to earn any money out of it. And they could be earning money out of speaking to real customers. Whereas I I thought, this is great. This is really exciting. Um, I'm speaking to a journalist at the Times. There was, you know, I, I just got a buzz out of it. And what was really exciting is it began to dawn on me that it was without doubt helping my advice and my sales as well. Because back in those days, you would work something like one in three Saturdays. So you'd come in on a Saturday morning, Life Search would be open. And lo and behold, there's my name in a national newspaper. And because Life Search was quite small back then, the leads that that would have driven, you know, the, the phone calls those pieces would have driven would have been in you know, 5, 10, 20, 30, and a few emails uh, included in that as well. These days, life search, you're talking to thousands of people a day. So the, the, the PR that, 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 that's driven is, is a smaller percentage. But I'd be on the phone to somebody who'd rang life search because they'd seen that piece in the paper that morning, and they'd realised they were talking to the person in the paper. And that was just pretty much... You know, as, as long as I didn't say anything silly or untoward, that was 95% guaranteed to be a customer. So, so I they were like, is, is this actually Kevin Carr from the Mail on Sunday? Or is this Kevin Carr that I've just read about in the, in the uh, you know, the Daily Express or whatever it was? So. Literally, yes. It sounds silly. Uh, and it sounds, you know, it, it, it sounds, I'm almost slightly embarrassed to say it. But yes, that's what would happen. Um, so I found that it was helping me. It was helping the business. Uh, and then other advisors just said, oh, it's one of your journalist friends, Kevin, on the phone, and they put them through to me. So it became part of my job that took up 5%, 10%, 20% of, of, of your time. And I'll always remember the first journalist I ever spoke to, a lovely chap called Mark Atherton from The Times, who I'm still very much in, in touch with now. And um, Tom took me to lunch one day. Um, this would have been about two or three years into my career at Life Search probably about 18 months, two years in. And he sort of said, what do you want to do, Kevin? I'm going to give you three options. Um, Life Search is going to expand. We're going to open a new office. It'll be in Brighton. And I want you to go and build it and basically replicate everything we've done in, in, in London. And I thought, oh, I like Brighton. 
that's my favourite place in the country, probably. The second option was to be a proper financial advisor at Baygood Davies and go and do the exams and learn about pensions and investments and all of that. And I'd sat G10, the, the trusty one, I think, and I'd, uh, I think I passed that. I remember failing G20 miserably, which was the advanced investment one. had no idea what I was doing with that one. Um, and option three was to quit being an advisor and be a full-time PR and become the actual spokesperson for Life Search. And what happened was that Brighton soon became Milton Keynes. Um, and if I needed a, a, a final thing to make my mind up, that was it. And I chose the PR route. So PR it was, and I stopped being an advisor. And, and my job became all about talking to journalists and talking to the industry and anything that involved getting the message about protection out there. Because it was always protection first, life search second. And I still stand by that now um, because that is better for the customer, better for the industry and better for the brand as well. I was going to say, it's um, speaking to people, like you said, it, it, it really does help. And obviously it's something where, you know, I do that quite often where the journalists will contact and again, you know, so your name will be in it. And, you know, we have people who come to us and obviously we're very specialist, you know, so obviously people tend to come to us if they've got sorry, they think, oh, I've read this and it's, it's very similar to my situation. And, and, um, and it can really be like that. So I think sometimes people might see it as, as you said, you know, a bit of a drain on their time, but there actually can be some return from that. And I think there's a bit of a, there's a couple of bits of return so there's a return in the sense if you might get you know you might get some clients but obviously as well if you are putting stuff out there it's potentially that your name's then going to be known by others in the industry who then might see you as somebody who's worthwhile to know and they might just you know it might start to build up a bit of an informal network there and then there's also a, a bit of feel-good factor I know for me like whenever I'm putting anything out there and it's helping people to understand what they might see or the terms that they might get if they go for insurance it just it, it makes me feel good to think, right, I'm actually helping this person prepare for what might might be the end result. Um, but I think as well, people can be quite cautious at times in terms of speaking to journalists, because ultimately you stop, right, some people think, well, is what I'm going to say going to end up being potentially twisted a little bit or is it going to be um you know put in an article with other people that I may not want to be linked with or is it going to be put out of context but I wonder if that stems a little bit from the fact that you know we all have this image in our minds that insurers are put in quite a, a negative light in terms of um sort of tabloid papers and that it often seems to be some kind of horror story of some sort where an insurer has been absolutely horrendous and um you know we've certainly seen a number of news articles where insurers haven't come across as seeming as living up to what they promised and and that obviously is is always very difficult but why don't you think that we hear we obviously we remember the negative stories are there just as many positive stories out there and we just forget them or is it that we are struggling to get those positive stories out there well um it's interesting for me that you mentioned people being cautious because that's obviously true and understandable and generally speaking most people should have a degree of, of media training before you expose yourself to that world especially in the age of social media um, because the, the, these things are not limited to a, a Saturday morning read as, as they once were. Um, my, my initial training, and I remember my first ever uh, press lunch with uh, another, gen another gentleman from, from the Times, the Sunday Times, called David Budworth. It was at Coq d'Argent um, at Bank, a, a wonderful restaurant. And my briefing in the cab over from Tom was literally, don't say a word. 
have a nice lunch, listen and learn. If it gets technical, if I need some backup about how a product works or what a Norwich union do that Scottish Provident don't or whatever it might be, I'll, I'll make it very clear to say something. Otherwise you just sit there and you listen and you'll learn. And that was my introduction um, to, to, to how these things work. So being cautious is, is certainly, certainly sensible. Um, to go back to your, your question, I, I think the first thing to bear in mind is, is the, uh, an old phrase from a PR point of view, which is plain land safely is not news. Um, pension pays out, life insurance policy pays out, endowment pays out is not news. Um, news is a the plural of the word new. And as, as someone famous once said, news is what somebody else doesn't want printed. It's what somebody else doesn't want to, to be read. Um, now that said, when it comes to protection, um, my truth is that it's a bit of a myth that I think the industry needs to stop perpetuating. I think we beat ourselves up and I think it's counterproductive to keep saying, oh, there's no good news stories. Oh, it's always the bad ones. Why do they always pick on us? I, I think it's a myth that's never existed. Um, certainly, if, if it was true, it's less true in the last decade than it was beforehand. And the more we keep saying it, the more people believe it. Um, for me, there are lots of good and balanced stories. I see them every week. I work on them um, every week, certainly most of them. Probably 60, 70, 80% of all stories written about protection come through us or touch us or we're involved with in, in some way, um, one way or another. The truth for me is that we don't then do enough with the good, balanced, informative ones. Company A doesn't want to share it because company B is mentioned um, in it, um, for example. And we do remember the bad ones and we, we assume that, you know, more people read the bad ones than the nice ones. And a lot of journalists sort of get fed up being asked, why don't you write about protection more often? Because they think, well, I did. I wrote about it two weeks ago. You obviously didn't read it. That's how journalists might well react in, in private. They know they wrote about it. Um, and to keep being asked about it proves that, that we A, don't read it, and B, don't remember them, and, and C, don't do enough with it. What I'd really love uh, is for the industry to try and work together to do more so that we can, A, get these stories out there much better as a collective, because between us all, God, we spend hours and hours and hours on social media, don't we? Um, trying you know, to promote the good things and, and explain the more challenging um, areas. But wouldn't it also be great if there was some sort of structure for the industry to respond and react when there is a decline claim in the press? At the moment, it's all very scattergun. Roy will do a bit. Catherine will do a bit. We'll do a bit. 20 others will do a bit. And then a story, and that's before a story even runs. And then a story runs and it goes on social and a whole another bunch of people will get involved, other advisors and insurers. And other journalists will see it and we'll respond and we'll share. And that will go across Twitter and LinkedIn. And there'll be a bunch of emails. And then we'll email the insurer saying, well, what, what really happened then? What, what isn't in this story that we need to know? And the amount of work, if you add up all of that work, it's hundreds of hours. Um, not, not each, but collectively hundreds of hours, I think, that goes on for pretty much every decline claim. Um, or every every article where where I think you know it, it doesn't necessarily cast the industry in in a in a completely positive uh, light, um, which is not as often as it feels. 
truth be told. I mean, I, Roy and I, we remember times, uh, I remember a particular week where there were three different decline claims in the national press in the same week, same week to 10 days. One was on TV, um, two were in national papers. And as an advisor, uh, we had customers emailing and ringing up the next day, that week, the next week saying, should I cancel? Um, this doesn't sound very good. Should I cancel this policy uh, because of that? It's nothing like that these days. There aren't three different people in a week on the TV criticising protection insurance. Um, we, we get, on average, a year, would we say half a dozen tops now, I would say. Uh, and, and, and I think we need to make far better, far better use of, of, of the better pieces um, and stop beating ourselves up and end the myth that it's only doom and gloom. I think the other thing to say here, Kevin, is just that, and I learned this uh, on numerous occasions, is that when you engage with a journalist, and we're going to come on to how, how younger uh, advisors might want to do this, but when you engage with them, um, it's actually a bit of fresh air <laughs> most of the time, isn't it? Firstly, they're very nice people. Secondly, they want to come and talk to us. They want to learn from us as well. It's always the other thing. You know, you start, new journalists starting recently at Money Marketing Financial Advisor, ringing the likes of you and I up and, and Catherine, I'm sure, and saying, could you teach us about this product? So there's that, that general knowledge. And I, and I think, the, the, you know, the, the, other, uh, the, the other thing that they, they almost plead with you is, is give us some stories. You know, tell us, tell us these good stories that you've got because there aren't enough of them around. We're, it's not that we're not going to print them. We will print them. But, you know, there's, there's, there's just a lack of them. Um, is, that, is that fair? Absolutely. I mean, we've had an apprentice start with us, um, 18 year old um, through the PRCA apprentice scheme, which is brilliant. And, you know, her involvement with us is, is warts and all. You know, we, we, she's involved in everything that, that we do on a daily and, and weekly basis, because I kind of figure well, that's how I'd want to learn. Um, and one of the conversations we were having recently was about how difficult it can be to talk to journalists. You know, you often you, you might not know them. They're a stranger. You might have this preconceived idea that they're going to twist my words, that, you know, that they're going to do something untoward. Um, and 99 times out of 100, that is, is absolutely not true. Um, but also the important thing to remember is what the journalist is thinking. Journalists, especially on the trade press, are often quite young. Um, they're often not experienced in the industry without qualifications. They're expected to speak to experts who've been doing this job 20, 30, 40 years and come across as intelligent, as knowledgeable, ask sensible questions and write sensible pieces of, of, of content. So the pressure on a young journalist just to pick up the phone or send an email to an expert of 30 years can be incredibly daunting and just as daunting as you might think it is speaking to a journalist for the first time. So it, it, it's, you know, it, it's, uh, it's an interesting dynamic and an interesting relationship between PRs and spokespeople and journalists and both need each other, both respect each other. Uh, and the outcome, of course, should always be that consumers get better protected and, and advisors get better educated. Yeah. I was going to say, so just, Kevin, let's, let's... I was going to say, can I just scoot back to something there very quickly that just um, sort of came to me? So, you know, when we talk about the positive stories, and I think probably a lot of advisors will be in the same boat as us. And I mean, obviously, I know we are very specialists, so it would be, you know, it'd be very hard for us to just put a story out and anonymize it as much as possible. And for somebody that we've helped due to the very nature of our client base, for them to not know, oh, they're talking about me. Um, I find it really hard personally to know how to approach that. And like if someone's also, I mean, I was going to say we don't have many claims at all, which is probably surprising to a lot of people considering, again, uh, the way that our client base is seen as high risk. We barely have any claims. And 
I personally find it really hard to figure out how I would approach somebody about that. You know, if someone's just had a critical illness claim, how do I go, you know, so I could approach them without seeming like I'm trying to promote my brand, without seeming like I'm trying to get some kind of commercial benefit from the fact that they've maybe just been diagnosed with a really serious cancer or something. It's, it feels, for me personally inside, it feels wrong to even contemplate asking someone that. So I think, you know, sometimes in terms of the, the positive stories, it's, it's possibly something like that as well, is that I, I just, I don't even know how to approach that. It's a brilliant and very apt question. I, I think I've been involved with at least 150 case studies um, over the last 20 years. Um, obviously, we, we you don't count, but but we, we know the figure is higher than that. Um, and certainly, it's got harder as the years have gone on. And I think a lot of that is to do with social media. Um, I used to estimate back in the days at LifeSearch that five phone calls and I'd, I'd get a case study. Um, and then it became 10. And then I think by the time I left Life Search, it's probably 20 phone calls to get a case study. And, and now I think it, it's, it's, it's gradually become even harder. Um, would I want to do it? Very probably not, um, because it does involve your name and your picture. Um, anonymized case studies occasionally work. But again, 99 times out of 100, um, for it to be newsworthy, they want to talk to the person and have the photograph and, and have their name. Um, you don't usually have to go into as much detail as your salary and your address and, and your job, but a name and a picture is is, is essential. Um, I think the key things here are relationship and timing. It, it preferably needs to come from somebody who has that relationship and not just be a PS on the end of a claim letter. Um, I think that's very unlikely to, to get in anywhere. Timing is, of course, is, is, is important. Um, you don't want it going out, you know, 40 hours after a diagnosis is, is, is made. Um, you've got to bear in mind as well that if a payout is involved, and this is particularly relevant for social media, is that, that people may not want friends, family, colleagues knowing that they've suddenly come into uh, what is, for most people, a very large amount of money. It could be hundreds of thousands, you know, mortgage clearing types of money. But the way that we do it is, is simply to understand that some people want to do this. Some people, for the reason might be, you know, um, because they love being in a newspaper. And we say, people, look, the line I've used hundreds of times, probably thousands, is look, some people love doing this, some people hate it. So what we're going to do to you is give you the option. Um, if, you, if, if you want your name and your picture in a newspaper, you want to buy a couple of copies, get it framed, put it on the stairs, um, you know, have something to show the kids when they grow up. It's a funny, lovely thing to do. And if you read the national press and you see people's pictures in there, this is how it works. Um, if you don't want to do it, if that idea scares you and you're thinking, nope, absolutely no, no not for me, no problem at all. You know, it doesn't make any odds. Um, but we're giving people the option if they want to do it. If they say yes, they're interested. We'll always have about a checklist of 10 things that we'll go through with them. Um, on the funny side, we ask if they've got any pets because if a pet gets in the picture, that can increase the word count. So a story can go from half a page to a page in a national newspaper. Slightly different online, of course, uh, but that can have an impact. And on the more serious side, we will always say, take your time. Go and talk to your partner, talk to your family, take a week, take two weeks. You haven't got to rush this. Nothing happens yet. Go and think about it. And if they don't come back to me, we leave them alone, generally. If they want to come back to me, then they, it's because they want to do it. And we've covered all the bases and then we go ahead. But even then it can still take many months before it might appear in a newspaper. 
I think the other tip that I would give some of our listeners there is a subject that we've talked about before, Catherine, but if we are, um, and hopefully we are every time, at knowledge of the claim, the advisor's got a very important part to play at claim stage as well in terms of the, the ongoing financial advice that comes out of that. And my experience is, is that if you are part of that advice, you uh, quite possibly get a more receptive audience from the from the customer in order to tell their story out loud because it's not just about the claim, it's what you do with that claim. Um, so, you know, there's an off-quoted stat that most critical illness payouts do not uh, pay out the, the full mortgage, even though sometimes they're set up to, okay? And I think that's good advice, by the way. Um, so I think there's a, there's sometimes some scenarios there that, that are worth talking about, the, the after advice. Um, and I, want, I want to take you back, Kevin, because um, you and I sort of started off, uh, you know, talking to the press roughly at the same time. So let, let's go back, uh, dare I say, 20 years. Um, um, be, bearing in mind that a lot of our listeners are, you know, going to be sort of late 20s, early 30s, uh, where we were then, uh, and, and and just sort of give ourselves some some advice if, if I can. Why should a, a, you know, let's take a 28-year-old advisor who's been doing it for a few years and, 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 and enjoys the job and is passionate about it, why should they potentially start talking to the press? I think that the reasons are almost endless. Um, you've got obviously brand awareness. You've got lead generation. Um, a lot of this is good content for social media and SEO, um, which raises, you know, the, the profile of, of your website, increases your social media profile. That itself leads through into things like award entries. Now, certainly in terms of my own personal experience, my when I moved into PR, my job actually changed again quite significantly and quite quickly. I was at a, a cover magazine roundtable. Um, I remember reading about them. I think they were called Silver Briefings or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Silver Briefings, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, do you remember those? And <laughs> I do. <laughs> you'd have about 10 people around the yeah. table. It'd be sponsored by an insurer, a couple of hours. Um, a couple of advisors would go along. The journalist would, of course, make notes. and It would come out a month or two later as a pullout in the centre of the magazine, about 10, 12 pages. And I remember reading those, and, and I had these people on a pedestal. You know, these were, you know, the Nick Kerwins and the Roger Edwards of, of the world. And, you know, and, and I thought, oh, I looked up to them. Um, and then one day I got invited to attend one. Um, and, you know, you, you have imposter syndrome and you feel nervous and you prep and you prep and you prep and you go along. And what happened was I, I remember leaving that, that round table and going to the pub, as you do with, with some of the insurers. Um, and I was... Life search again were, were very small and very new. We didn't even have broker consultants at that time with every insurer. And I, I won't name the insurer, but I was talking to a head of protection. And I explained how it worked. This is what we do. This the background and how it all works. And I came. I left that pub with ten percent more commission um, for Life Search, uh, which sounds very um, you know relatively unprofessional, but it was pretty much the same as having a, a, a meeting with the insurer. And I, I drafted an email um, to Tom that that said. There's a job in this, Tom. The PR profile isn't just about PR. It's about the insurer relationships. And commission is but one of them. It leads through to better service. You get into product development, underwriting claims, a, a better, or even just getting a broker consultant because you might not have one. And it raises your profile internally with insurers. All of this, a little 1%, that all add up to better service, better underwriting, better products, better pricing. Um, and all things that benefit the customer and benefit the industry. So my job changed and it became almost 50% PR and 50% what was called life office relations and development. 
So I got to know every insurer, every reinsurer, didn't even know reinsurers were a thing, um, at a very senior level. And the whole thing blended together very well. Now, I'm not saying that you have to make a full-time job out of this, but I think in my experience, I've worked with a lot of people who value PR in very different ways. Some people just get it. They know that if you're mentioned in a headline or a certain story in a certain publication with the right audience, that will benefit your business. They know it's a given. Um, others will look for more tangible evidence. They want to see clicks. They want to see ROI. They want to see some financial provable benefit, um, which is, isn't always easy um, when it comes to PR in, in, in the modern world. And what we tend to look at is, is, is that are you in the right publications about the right topics with the right audiences often enough? And you tend to know that the benefits flow from there onwards uh, in a whole multitude of, of reasons. I think you make a great point there. It's something I hadn't quite realised about. If you do this in the press, eventually the insurers will start knocking on your door and, and asking you for your views on product development. And I think one of the things that you know we've talked about lots of times, haven't we, Catherine, is, is, is the, the distributor uh, voice being heard by the manufacturers. Actually, I, I suspect all three of us on numerous occasions have actually sat down with, uh, with insurers who have said, what do you think should be changed? And I think that's part of the, uh, it's no good our side of the industry just consistently moaning about, you know, we need innovation and product development if we're not prepared to uh, come up with some ideas. And I guess if you, if you raise your profile in, in the press, Kevin, then people will know who to come and talk to, yeah? Absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. I think it's, um, it's really interesting. So I think, you know, in terms of we've been just like assessing our marketing and PR and everything and, you know, recently. And, uh, and what I think I've figured out, I think from us as a, as a company, I think we seem to have done quite a lot of PR, but I didn't even realise it, it was PR in a sense. It's just kind of like being a case of, I'm just going to turn up and do this and chat to this person over here. Um, but I think as well, you know, quite a lot of people – they might find it, you know, for a number of reasons, you could have your one-man band who start like thinking, right, well, I'm, I'm working like a 50-hour week anyway. How can I possibly do any more of this? And you might then also have someone else who's part of a bigger organisation thinking, well, how can I do this myself? And I think this is probably, you know, along the lines of if someone's in that kind of a position where they are part of a much bigger organisation, um, Kevin, I imagine that they're probably more along the lines of, you know, in terms of increasing their profile, probably developing, you know, trying to speak to sort of like account managers, developing their knowledge with them. Um, but I imagine as well getting um, quite clear guidance from their company's social media advisors and PR teams as to what they can and can't say and social and, and what's good, what isn't good, things like that. Yeah, to an extent. Um, there's, a, there's a bunch of points here, I think. One is, I mean, most of our clients are small. Most of our client relationships start small. Um, and then they they either tend to achieve what they need to achieve and it becomes self um, you know self purporting, um, or we we continue and, and we grow. Um, a second point that it's interesting I think for, for listeners potentially to understand is is when you're reading a comment from somebody in the press or, or a blog or a feature, that person may have written it all themselves. They may have never even seen it. Both truths exist. The majority is somewhere in between. Um, it'll be a combination of what that person wants to say that may have gone through some marketing or PR process to improve it, to make it better, to make it punchier, to make it shorter, whatever it may have been. And I, I know lots of people who fall under both camps of where 99% of what you read in their name, they've written. I know other people who don't even see what goes out with their name and, and their picture next to it. So the point about I'm already very busy 
it can be fitted around you and how much time you've got. A lot of what we do is it might be a quick 20 minute phone call or a bunch of bullet points on an email. Here's what I want to say. Here's a rant. (laughs) Here's a brain dump. Can you turn that into something that's usable um, that will get us, you know, get us content and and get eyes on on what we do? Um, But I think the bigger point here is something you touched on, Catherine, which is, well, is it PR or is it marketing? And this is a fascinating one for me and, and for people in PR, because I think uh, a lot of the time it's easy to assume that PR is a page in the marketing handbook. Um, and you think, well, PR, well, that's a press release. Um, I see it differently. For me, the public is everyone and relations is everything. It's every possible way that you interact with somebody and not just a customer, but your industry and even your own people. So a phrase that we hear and use a lot is about integrated uh, content uh, and that's you know about having your social media and your blogs and your website and your PR your press releases and your internal communications all aligned all talking to each other all timed accordingly which is of course a, a perfection that rarely exists because it's incredibly hard to do but for me the truth is that marketing is a form of PR PR is how is, is everything that you stand for it's your eth- ethics it's it's the optics of how things are seen by different audiences. And quite often another phrase that's used is, is, is different messages for different audiences. And that can be right. It can be very easy to say, well, I'll put this out on social and therefore that works as an award entry. It works for internal comms. Oh, and it can work for, for a press comment. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it doesn't work that way at all. But I think, you know, it, it's important to consider PR as being more than just a press release. Kevin, I'd also uh, add to that, um, uh, and uh, again, we've seen this hundreds of times, localised PR is as important as nationalised PR sometimes, yeah? Um, in, uh, you know, within your local business community, you know, potential introducers, you know, and there's lots of examples, you know, where people have found the local mortgage broker because of their PR or found the local wealth manager because of their PR. So, so it doesn't always have to be as, as vast as sometimes it's portrayed. Absolutely. I mean, you know, signposting and, and, and partnerships and introducing is a further benefit that we, we've not touched on so far. Um, and, and the local press is thriving. Um, you know, the, the, these days, there's hundreds of them um, from the bigger ones like the Evening Standard and the Manchester Evening News to, to, to many, many below that. They're thriving in, a, in often in a digital environment. And in fact, that's actually where most of our trade journalists come from. Most of the trade journalists that join the financial services sector often come from the local and the regional press. It's a, it's a good hunting ground for recruitment. I was going to say, um, just sort of like going on, I think a little bit from there is when we talk about like the local and the national and things. So obviously, I mean, we've got to talk about awards, Kevin, you're here. So there's no way we can avoid speaking about awards and entries and different things. And um and obviously, you know, for us, we are, you know, at the moment, we, you know, obviously we do national awards, but we're also doing quite a few local awards now as well, which obviously, as you know, for a lot of people, it's a much nicer on the uh, on the budget to sorry, do some local awards where you're not traveling too far. And it's nicer, obviously, again, to try and get your name out there, you know, not just for, for clients, but also potentially recruitment as well. Um I think, you know, sometimes people do wonder, though, should we do the what the awards or not i mean obviously we enter quite a few awards it is it is really lovely to win awards i don't think anybody can doubt that if they've you know say that they've if they've won something that it's not felt like yes absolutely this is amazing um I've also had some other people before turn around and say, well, actually, you know, these awards, it's more to do with, you know, how many 
bums on seats you can get into the into the world as to who's going to win and things like that um so there is kind of a bit of a you know there's huge positivity but you do sometimes get those little grumbles in the background as well for some people so i suppose the big thing is what are your thoughts on awards should advisors be doing it you know is it a case of you know if you buy 10 tables you're going to win every single award in there what's a how does it work well um i'm sure that 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 all types of award entry process exist uh, somewhere. Um, so I, I can only speak for the ones that I, I know of, but that's just about all of them uh, in, in, our, in our industry. You know, I, I've written entries, lost one, judged just about all of them at one point um, or, or another. Um, and what I would say is, is award entries are well worth doing um, for all the reasons we've touched on. Um, it'll get you taken more seriously with insurers. It's great content for your social media and your website. It's great for internal morale. It's good for lead generation. Um, all of those things are, are good. It's, 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 it's good PR. Um, the, the, the question is about what do you then do about it? In terms of some of the myths, just about all the myths are myths. Um, the one about, well, you know, I, I haven't bought a table, so I won't win. Um I think, well, you know, judging tends to take place a couple of months before an event happens and nobody knows who's taken a table at that point. Um, so how would you, how would there possibly be a link between buying a table and winning an award? Um, what does happen is that if you've won and you're not going, you might get an email or a phone call strongly encouraging you to go and strongly encouraging you maybe to, you might want to buy a table with a nudge and a wink. Um, that may well happen, which I don't think is, is untoward in any way. That's, that's a decision that's already been made, but the event managers want the winner there on the night for obvious reasons. It's good for, it's good for all parties. So that will happen. Um, so certainly there might be times where you might then look around and think, ah, they had a table. That's why they won. The truth is a million times the opposite. No, they won and therefore they may have taken a table afterwards. But even that, I would say, is quite quite rare uh, and, and few and far between. Um, you know, in, in terms of tips for award entries, of course, there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of them. Um, you know, take it seriously and back it up is the main one. I literally read a, a, a bunch of awards very recently for an event that's coming up next month, and there's really great claims in there. We did this, I did that. And then it goes on to talk about something else. I'm thinking, ah, well, prove it to me. I'm not just going to believe it because you said it in an award entry. I want to see some proof, some evidence of what you've done. Um, personally, I'm a, I'm a stickler for stats and evidence and ROI. Um, so if you're going to say that, uh, you know, you, you achieved something, well, give us some proof of, of what it was you achieved. Okay, that's uh, that, that, absolutely great on awards. Um and some 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 real insightful stuff there, and I, and I think people should think should think very carefully about it because for me awards and PR go hand in hand. Um, I just ski over a little bit to something like a bit more generic. The protection market at the moment, you know, we're just hopefully coming out of this dreadful pandemic. How how, how does it feel generally to you? Um, mixed, I think. Um... I think there's some good things happening. I think a lot of things were, of course, put on the back burner during the what hopefully was the worst of the pandemic in terms of product development and technology um, that, that will now start to see accelerated. On the flip side, you know, it, it does seem that, that you know, interest and, and inquiries are, are down. Um, and I suspect that's a combination of, 
you know, the, 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 the feeling the pinch in people's pockets financially. Um, there's inflation left, right, and center. Obviously, the the pandemic fear has been replaced by a very different kind of fear now globally. Um, although I think, you know, subconsciously, did the pandemic sort of send a message that that you know are, are people invincible? Um, is there something subconsciously going on where people think, well, it didn't get me? Um, so I, I therefore don't need to think about anything like this. I'm not saying that's a conscious thought process. I just maybe, I think this is a grudge purchase our industry has. It's not something you want to think about and what to act on. So I think quite often people look for reasons not to do anything. You, you look for reason to justify not having to do anything. Oh, it won't pay out. Oh, insurers are all, all nasty to deal with. It's too expensive. I can't afford it. All of these things sit there somewhere in the conscious or the subconscious as um as a reason not to do anything so i think it's mixed Um, i think the industry will have a challenging year um but the question is is it a case of you know sort of one step back to take two steps forward i mean you've mentioned collaboration a few times Do, do you do you think that we are now more collaborative than we were 10 years ago If everyone could see Kevin's face right now. <laughs> Stumped. <laughs> um, I honestly don't know. I'll be more collaborative than we were 10 years ago. I honestly don't know. Um, I mean, it's difficult to answer that question without referring to something like seven families. You would think, you would like to think that seven families um, showed an inkling of what could be done if we did something like that properly. And by properly, I, I, I kind of mean, you know, with, 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 with full-time people running a project and, and with the sort of funding that a two-year campaign needs. Um, you know, effectively, that the, the marketing and PR budget for seven families was £50,000 over two years. Um, you know, the, 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 and there are campaigns for £50,000 a month that don't always break through. So, you know, I, I think it showed what, what could be done. And you would like to think that that would therefore encourage an industry to go do down it again. the road, yeah. do it yeah. again. Yeah. Um, and there is no shortage of people that want to do it again, um, but not enough of them, um, I think. And, you know, you, you kind of think, well, if sales do go down this year and next year, then maybe, just maybe... Um, you know, those who, who who really do hold the pocket strings might kind of think, yes, actually, we do need something now. Um, and maybe we're out of options and we'll go back to something like Seven Families. I think we've got to be conscious as well, you know, that especially with, um, obviously, everyone's going to be really watching their energy bills right now. And, you know, we're seeing lots of things. I mean, ours has gone up a silly amount. Um, it's more than doubled. And, you know, for a lot of people, that is massively going to affect whether or not they have the choice between being warm or eating, let alone paying for an insurance policy that, as we always say, it kind of sits in a drawer and you hope you never use it. So it's you know, in terms of what people's, you know, very much their financial needs are in, in the immediate term versus that long term, it's going to be very difficult for a lot of people. And, um, and I think that as advisors and insurers, we're all going to need to really prepare to support people who are possibly going to be facing very, very tough times ahead. Absolutely. Um, and it, 
it's going to be an interesting challenge for the industry in terms of flexibility and, and what we do in terms of offering, you know, re- reductions in cover that can be reinstated without underwriting, you know, you know premium holidays or whatever it is that the industry can, can come up with. But you also don't want to be too proactive about that because it might encourage people to reduce cover that wouldn't have done otherwise. So you, you almost want it to be driven by the policyholder to say, look, we're, we're, we're struggling, we're probably going to have to cancel this, and then to have some options available, um, as opposed to saying, hey, millions and millions of people, you can halve your life insurance um, and, and save some money, because that would possibly be counterproductive for the bigger picture. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for, for coming on, Kevin. It's been lovely hearing all of these things. And I think we've gone around quite a few different areas in terms of PR. <laughs> and um, and it's uh, obviously really good to get your insights. Um, next time, I'm going to have Matt Rand back with me and we're going to be talking about um, specific risks again and going to a deep dive with them about how they mix with insurance. If you would like a reminder of the next episode, please drop me a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk. And don't forget that if you've listened to this as part of your work you can claim a cpd certificate on the website too thanks to our sponsors which are the opto members so thank you again kevin you're very welcome thank you